All right. Today I am speaking with Eliza Mondegreen. And thank you so much for being here to talk with me, Eliza. It's nice to see you today. It's good to see you too. So I really am excited to speak with you because you have been exploring the world of what's going on with gender very deeply. And you've you've spent a lot of time writing about this and 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 kind of teasing it apart and analyzing what's happening. And I I feel like I've touched on that topic with several guests that I've had mm -hmm. on this this channel and we've had conversations around it. But we haven't really gone into the details of what's happening, like what is W path, what is what is going on, and and the arc of the modern gender narrative. And so I'm hoping that maybe you can help kind of walk me through that a little bit. But first of all, would you mind giving an introduction for yourselves for anybody who's not familiar with your work? Sure. Yeah. Um, so I'm a graduate student researcher and uh writer and I got interested in the topic of gender. Um, I suppose I've always been interested in the topic of gender. I got interested in the topic of gender identity like seven-ish years ago. And like so many people who got interested in the topic of gender about seven years ago, uh, I fell down a rabbit hole and have been reporting from down there ever since. So that would have been about 2016? Yeah, that would have been about 2016. What was it that happened in 2016 that brought it to your awareness? It had been on my radar for several years that there was just something unusual or something that didn't feel quite right. And in 2016, a couple of things happened that brought it much closer to home. Um, both like within my friend group, um, within my work, within every time that I would try to talk about, you know, uh, anything to do with women's rights. I had noticed that what was on the margins in 2013 or 2014, when I first noticed it was all of a sudden, like every single time you would talk about women, there would be this push to clarify, you know, do you mean all women, like do you include all women, by which they mean, do you include men? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and so there were a lot of reasons that it came much closer and that I was finally, it was like, okay, there had been several years that I had been wondering what was going on and not looking deeply into it. And that was the year that I was like, okay, hmm. I have to understand what's going on here. That, and, and it's, it's interesting that you took that approach to it because I think so many people hear this stuff and sort of start to just absorb it. And it becomes as you know, this phrase I keep hearing lately, like the water that we're swimming in, instead of really mm -hmm. taking the time to say, what, what is this? What, how do I understand this, this cultural phenomenon? Yeah. And I think that there had been a period of time where I was absorbing it. And then I realized I didn't really know what those things meant. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and that was always going to bother me eventually. <laughs> So what my hope you, is it would always bother everybody eventually, but yeah, we haven't gotten there for some people yet. Yeah, that's a good point. I guess we all have a threshold. Yeah, presumably. It's presumably. <laughs> so what was what was it that you did with that curiosity? Um, the first thing that I did was that I just I went online, and at that time I went on. Um, there was there was a story by Michelle Goldberg that used a word that I had been called many years before that had not meant anything in particular to me and had not and continued to not mean anything particular to me after I had looked it up, which was that I had been called a turf in a, okay. in a women's group um, for questioning some priorities of that group. And I had looked it up and it was like trans exclusionary radical feminist. And I just had no idea. Like it just, it was basically devoid of meaning for me. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then I saw it again in this Michelle Goldberg piece. And this was this was maybe in 2015, but it gave me somewhere to look in 2016, where it was just like, okay, who are these, who are these people? Am I really one of these people? Mm -hmm. Um are they really? <laughs> it was it was hard because I think I had a lot of conditioning that. I still see operating with a lot of friends and colleagues where I felt very, very nervous about um, kind of you, like you kind of know when you're stepping out mm -hmm. and 
I was nervous about that, but I was more curious than I was nervous. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I was reading, I found um, the Reddit subreddit group, Gender Critical, which has now been, of course, um, erased from the internet. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. In the summer of 2020, um, it was part of like, there was this push on Reddit to remove what they called a bunch of hate subreddits. And so I think they, mm. I think that's when they got rid of the, um, the Donald subreddit and they got rid of some, they got rid of a whole bunch, but they also took that opportunity to nuke gender critical, mm. which it takes an interesting definition of hate for that to qualify. Yeah. 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 For sure. I mean, it's definitely yeah. a massaging of the word. Yeah. At best. Yeah. Mm, I've never been on Reddit. And it's mm. so, yeah. And, and I was out of it. I mean, like out of the cultural loop to it okay. at, at that time. So this wasn't creeping into my awareness at that point. It was more 2019, 2020 before okay. I really kind of realized. What would you say I, got your attention in like 2019, 2020? School. Going back school. to graduate school. Yeah, okay. definitely. Definitely. I mean, they're probably like around 2017, 2018, there was some racial stuff on Facebook that was weird. I saw the phrase mm-hmm. white privilege for the first time. And I thought this is strange. These concepts are so, they're so reductive, you know? Yeah. And, um, but the gender stuff, I don't know if I was aware of it to that extent at that point. Yeah. But you were in graduate school at the time, or were you an undergrad? No, I was working in um, I was working in the nonprofit sector, the progressive nonprofit sector, and so oh. I was deeply immersed in. You know, it's interesting. Like the organization that I worked for when I started in like 2012, mm-hmm. they did fairly concrete, but generally quite small things mm-hmm. that had some kind of impact in the material world. And by the time I left. Um, it was like, it was, it was just all like language games and white guilt. And like, there was just nothing material left. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's like, it loses its substance and it's just caught up in like arguing with itself over these things. Yeah. It -hmm. lost the ability to like make any difference in the world, however small, and exchanged it for the ability to make everybody feel bad all the time. Mm-hmm. When you say Which, language games, I I, oh, I first think yeah. of like the UW inclusive language guide and then the inclusive yes. language that Stanford put out, like that kind of thing. Yeah, definitely that kind of thing. Um, so I did a lot of writing for this organization. And every time I would send something out, someone on staff, and usually the same person, would respond. And... Uh, with suggestions and with, you know, helpful resources about how to say things a little better. And I think that my favorite one was when she dinged me for um, a very basic, like, grassroots advocacy email about, like, a policy proposal. And it was like, okay, I I just needed a headline. I've always been bad with headlines. And I put, like, stand up for whatever in the in the headline. And she was like, you know, this is kind of ableist. And I was like, did you literally stand up when you read the email or was it a metaphor? Like... Oh my gosh. Stand up was ableist. Yeah. Wow. That seems like I, you know, so I wrote this little parody after I saw the UW inclusive language Mm -hmm. guide. And it was like, you can get down to the point where just language itself is ableist. So we shouldn't write. And then gestures that's ableist too. I mean, every single thing you can end up just like, okay, go sit in your corner. Yeah. And it really does in these kind of environments, it really becomes this competition of like, who is the, has the most sensitivity to any possible slight. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good point. It's like a sensitivity competition. Uh, Yeah. It's like a sensitivity arms race where you can like demonstrate it by being more offended by something that's even stupider and more abstruse. Yeah. Wow. That's so true. And yeah, it's like a demonstration of your, um, I don't know what your true social justice um, mindset or something. Yeah. And just that you have this kind of superior sensibility, sensitivity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so I was in that world for a long time. Yeah. You were really, I don't you really were really in it. it. 
Yeah. Did you have to deprogram your, your thinking or were you always kind of watching this happen and going, what the heck is this? And, and how do I, how do I speak to it? That's a good question. I think, I think what happened is there were a couple of places where I kind of noticed myself getting pulled by the current and it alarmed me and like was kind of a wake up call. And I think, I think that that kind of that aversion to going with the current, which is maybe just like being, you know, kind of a loner, not a joiner type mm-hmm. personality, you know, and you never know what exactly it is that keeps you out of these things. But um, I never went along very much. I was always kind of like the wry observer who was like, hmm, that's weird. Mm. But <laughs> it was definitely when I left it was interesting to just be able to talk a lot more freely because I couldn't be fired anymore. Mm. Mm. Okay. So you had the sense of having to hold back while you were there. And then when you left, you felt free in that. Yeah. Because you really do feel like you're being, you know, you have coworkers on your social media accounts and you feel like you're kind of being surveilled. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So amidst all this, was it gender that really stood out to you as as something that was particularly, you were particularly curious what is going on here or particularly concerned about? Mm-hmm. Yes, because it was based on something like, I could definitely be disturbed by dynamics in other areas. Like a lot of the like anti-racist stuff you know, like, okay, well, we need racism, positive, like anti-racist discrimination tomorrow to make up for racist discrimination yesterday. Like, Uh of course that stuff is alarming. Um, But it is based on a real history of like racial discrimination. And the thing that was so alarming to me about the gender stuff was that it was just not true. Like there was just nothing there. And so it had this kind of like, gravitylessness that I found really scary and that I was probably kind of primed to pick up on because um, my fascination as as a kid and as a a college student had always been on like totalitarian regimes and things that are not true. So when you say, would you say a little bit more about that? I'm really curious, like when you say that it wasn't true and there was like nothing, it was baseless, what, what was it that you, how did you realize that? What was it about it? One of the things was having a lot, like hearing a lot of people who I knew personally mm-hmm. and who I knew to be, you know, generally good, if not, you know, brilliant people <laughs> was hearing people say things like, okay, trans women are women. And, and you're trying to understand why they're saying that. And you ask them what they mean by it. And mm-hmm. they have no idea, but it's very important to say. Mm-hmm. And running into a lot of things like that. And so many of the claims and demands would, of the kind of the trans activist movement would have this detachment from reality where like you couldn't, you know, there was no possibility of like fact checking what people mm-hmm. were saying or of reconnecting it to. It was almost know. like a statement of faith at that point. It was a statement of faith and it made me very nervous to see kind of to see politics and culture moving boldly into that realm of just like pure faith statements. Mm-hmm. I think factuality is a pretty important basis of like a liberal society. Do you think that people had sort of when, when in that statement, trans women are women, do you think there's a sort of mental schema of the trans woman and what is that and how does that mesh with reality? I don't, I still don't know exactly what people are saying when they say that. I think what they are saying is because language creates reality, it's very important to put into the world that like we see trans women as women. And it's very mm-hmm. important for people not to say trans women are men because of language constructing reality. Mm-hmm. Um, and the thing that made me so uncomfortable was, you know, I, I had studied language and totalitarian regimes. Um, and I had studied and I'd always 
not studied right. I've never studied writing, but I always loved to write. And so, mm. you know, the way that I understand language, it's just, it's nothing like that. It's like, okay, language, you can make things more or less clear. Mm-hmm. And that can have real world consequences because you can enlighten or confuse people mm-hmm. or mislead people. Mm-hmm. And that's not the same thing as language literally constructing reality and language literally making men into women. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think that that was the big clash for me was just being like language doesn't work like that but you can sure as hell confuse people and manipulate people and go to bad places and mm-hmm. yeah yeah it's interesting it has a very because i said so feel to it it does mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. and i think something that i've noticed about a lot of women who are interested in gender is kind of having a history of experiencing like course of control on a relationship mm-hmm especially in a romantic relationship and noticing those same dynamics of like, because I said so. And if you don't, I'll kill myself. Like Mm -hmm. if you have seen that before and I've seen that before, like you are going to recognize it when you see it again, even if it put on lipstick and a dress and calls itself like a social movement. Mm -hmm. Wow. That's really, that's a powerful statement. Yeah. I mean, this is something that JK Rowling talks about. It's something that, I like, I would just, I would really be curious if it were possible to like survey the entire like gender critical population of women, like how many are in that boat Mm -hmm. for how many was that part of like, okay, putting the pieces together and being like, something is not right here. Mm -hmm. Like, it's just a gut level. I recognize this. This is not right. Right. Like Mm -hmm. I have been through this before. I have seen this before. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so that's, that's kind of where you were just kind of reacting to this and saying, no, that mm-hmm. this, you can't construct this reality. Uh, and this would have been what night, uh, 2019 ish at this point after no, you that would have been, unprofit? that would have been much earlier okay. that I felt that way, but I don't know. I mean, the approach that I had kind of taken publicly in the time that I was still at the nonprofit was, you know, if you have a target and the center is the thing that you really want to talk about, but you can't because you get mm-hmm. fired, mm-hmm. that you kind of like, you shoot all around the target and you'll hit everything that's like related to it. And so I would, like, I would talk about other social contagions. I would talk about other culture bound syndromes. I would talk about um, women's rights and I wouldn't use the language that I was supposed to use. Like I was trying to like, I would talk about totalitarian language games. Mm-hmm. Um, I would talk about medical scandals and I would just, you know, I kind of felt like I was dropping all of these hints and I wasn't sure if anybody was picking them up and I didn't feel like I could be much more explicit. Mm-hmm. And I also like, I felt at that time that even, even just kind of non-participation in the fictions that like gender requires, like that felt conspicuous. Mm-hmm. And I would write, I would write posts or I would write things for um, my work. And anytime they were about women, I would like, like I said, I would just get challenged Mm -hmm. about it it was like nothing could be about women and when i would say do you notice what's happening here which is that nothing is allowed to just be about women Mm -hmm. people would like there was this amazing like incomprehension of like what i could possibly mean by that even when i would try to be speaking quite clearly and i found that strange too it's interesting that that came right after i guess the me too thing Yes, I and, find that interesting. Yeah, it's like, did one lead to the other? I mean, the Me Too thing was really quite quite astonishing in some ways also, because it was it had a totalitarian aspect to it as well. Like, there's only one yeah. way to talk about this. And, and even if you could largely agree with what was being said, there was definitely an orthodoxy, and there was a there was way to address orthodoxy. this. Yeah. And there was definitely there was definitely not a universal, but a widespread contempt for things like, okay, due process. And was this person actually guilty of this thing? Or are we making him an avatar for like every man who's like mistreated you? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So at the time when you were having these conversations, was it primarily Mm -hmm. in your, like just your smaller social media group or had you started the process of really writing to a larger audience at that point? No, I, um, it was really just talking to friends and coworkers, mm-hmm. um, talking to my family, 
<laughs> and when did you start to, uh, did you, I, I'm, I'm curious about the beginnings because at this point you have been writing to a much larger mm-hmm. audience. Did you, did, did your writing just start to pick up steam? Did people start to see what you were writing or did you, um, what was that process like of, of speaking to this issue on a broader scale? Um, how it actually started was I was dating this philosopher very briefly and he was, he was a nice guy. He was a little pedantic, um, as they, you know, sometimes tend to be, uh, and we had run into this huge conflict over, um, the trans issue. And we had been writing each other back and forth. These really between long emails you. between the two of us. Oh, and we had been writing each other back and forth these really long emails and I would get back these, these emails that didn't engage with anything that I said. And I would try to engage with the things that he said. And that was the point where I was just like, okay, I've put way too much work into this for only this blockhead to see it. And so I just started like turning those things into Twitter threads. And this was in 2019. Um, and yeah, I think like very slowly on Twitter, like you will find people and people will find you. And mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. So you've done all this work of really, really addressing his points and doing this deep yeah. analysis. And you're like, well, he's not even seeing this. Right. It's so. just like, it's totally wasted on him. Yeah. Um, and it was the first time that I like, given how much I had talked about it and how much I had especially thought about it in my own head, that was the first time that I'd like taken the trouble to like write it out. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I didn't want it to go to waste. <laughs> that was how my that was how my writing for the public about gender started was um, romantic disappointment. <laughs> That's really interesting. Gender yeah. out of romance. Yeah. Uh, so um, during this time, you was it was it prompted by trying to address these points that he was making and that culture was making that you kept seeking more clarification and more understanding of the the gender what do you even call it the gender movement what is what is what do you call this thing that's happening um i i don't have a special name for it i the name that i picked for my substack was like gender hacked so kind of how gender hacked like mm. our culture and our institutions and like our own psyches because it's mm. this incredibly compelling kind of idiom of distress idiom of distress yeah so that's a term from like psych- psychiatry um it's basically like at any given time or place there will be a lot of people who experience distress for a lot of different reasons and in the culture there will be this kind of pool of symptoms that everybody draws from and this pool of like metaphors to make sense of that suffering that everybody draws from and things can be added to that pool and things can kind of drain out of the pool over time as they lose kind of cultural salience wow okay wow i love that concept that's so interesting yeah me too wow and it really does i'm writing that down because that it that concept makes so much sense. And I love that there's a, a, a word yeah. for it and a way of thinking about it. Yeah. And it's like, when you think about something like the idea of being born in the wrong body is an explanation for like a very deep sense of wrongness that somebody might mm-hmm. feel throughout their life. Yeah. Like it's an incredibly compelling metaphor. And the problem is when the individual, and then especially when like the medical system takes that really literally instead of taking it really seriously because to take it really seriously would be okay you're not born in the wrong body because that's not a thing but mm-hmm. you're having this really deep feeling of like disconnection or disassociation mm-hmm. or um you know having trouble making connections with other people whatever it is that's going on that you know a doctor needs to care about and your friends and loved ones should care about mm-hmm. but that we shouldn't take too literally mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. wow yeah yeah it, the, and I want to get into that, but I also want to know, I, I'm also really curious about, um, you know, just your further explorations of this, because I think that mm-hmm. you're, you're in a position, you've put yourself in a position to really understand the arc of what's happening very well. And that, I guess the medicalizing of this, it's, it's so interesting that it's this internal experience and it seems like there's an a discrepancy, but we don't understand whether it's psychological or medical, even in the, mm-hmm. in the 
medical field in the psychology and medical arena, because we've got these psychologists and counselors who are just writing a letter based on very, I mean, they've got like the Gallup project, which is this letter writing project where we pledge to just write letters for anybody who says they're trans or non-binary. We just pledge that we're, here's your directory of people that you can go to for a letter, like guaranteed. Or walk up to this tent at a pride parade and we'll write you a letter right now. Yeah, exactly. So then that's not psychological at that point. That's just saying we, we don't want to block your access to care. And what is care? It's consumer cosmetic medicine. It's just a consumer um, product like we are service. Like you can come and, and get these things done, but then, then the, backdrop for all of this is you're so psychologically distressed that if you don't get this consumer medicine, then you'll, you'll kill yourself, you know, that, that your, your distress will be so unbearable. And so we must provide you this access, but we also can't address it from a psychological. I mean, so this just seems like a morass of confusion. Yes. Yeah. I think when you touch upon the suicide risk, like I think that that is, or the suicide narrative, I would Mm say, um, I think that that is the piece that really binds everybody, like binds patients. I've heard so many people, like I've heard people in real life, friends of mine who transitioned, I've heard people online, I've heard people that I've met through this say like they really did believe that if they didn't transition, they would kill themselves. Because they were told that? Because they were told that, because that's the narrative in these communities. Um, and that that the suicide narrative was a reason to not even wait to be sure about transition. Wow. So even for the individual themselves, even like- for the individual that it was, yeah. I mean, especially when we're talking about, you know, people who are young and impressionable and like really having, you know, struggling. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I think that there are a lot of people, it's a, it's a narrative that can certainly be leveraged manipulatively, but a lot of people really buy into it who are patients um, and doctors buy into it and it skews every risk calculation because, you know, you can do anything to a patient and it's better than the patient killing themselves. Right. It's like a harm reduction thing at that. Right. Right. It's like, okay, well we could block their puberty. And honestly, we have no idea what the long-term impacts of that are, but at least they won't kill themselves. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like that's the argument. Mm -hmm. And then of course they use it against parents to, to basically to beat hesitant parents into compliance and And they use it against the society. (laughs) Where it's like, okay, don't ask too many questions about this. Like we're saving lives. Right. We're saving lives. And it's also like we've had legislatures, legislators on the floor of, you know, US state houses, and I think also on the floor of the parliament saying things like that a political debate would cause young people to take their lives, which is not a great suggestion to make to young people. Yeah. 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 And that's what you're saying is that the 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 culture pushing this narrative is encouraging young people to adopt this stance. Not it's not yeah. coming from within. It's not coming from the young person unprompted. I mean, I wouldn't say we don't know if it ever, you know, comes unprompted. I'm sure in some cases it does, but yes, young people in this community are primed with this narrative about mm-hmm, mm-hmm. being at a high risk of suicide. And the data is not really there. Like, there's the absolute risk of suicide from the studies that exist. Like it's, it's very low mm-hmm. and it's on par with, you know, the rate of suicide for people with serious mental health conditions, which I would argue, you know, gender dysphoria is one. Mm-hmm. And it's not at all on the scale where it would be like, okay, we should throw out everything that we know about, you know, the scientific process and child development and mm-hmm. all of, you know, we've kind of thrown everything overboard for this narrative that isn't really grounded in reality. Mm-hmm. And I think that that has, I think that that has greased the skids for a lot of very bad medical practice. And it has excused a lot of things that we would not accept in any other area of medicine, like just blocking a kid's development because, you know, because they want you to, because they don't think that they are the thing that they are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that blocking development, the puberty blocking drugs, what do you Mm -hmm. know about the, the long-term impacts of that on, on the body? So nobody knows really long-term. Okay. Um, 
So this is a class of drugs that has had many uses. So they're in-stage prostate cancer drugs and in-stage because they are nasty in terms of their effect on the body. That's what they were developed for in state or I think that that is what they were first approved for in state prostate cancer, in state prostate cancer. Okay. Um, They've been prescribed for endometriosis, but typically only for periods of up to six months because Because they're because the side effects can be so debilitating. Wow. Um, These kinds of drugs have been used to chemically castrate sex offenders. And they've also like, I think as far as I'm aware, the pool of kids who were given these at about the age that gender dysphoric kids are given them, although usually for less time, are, you know, young women about my age who were given them in the early, late 90s or the early 2000s for precocious puberty. Okay. And they're now in their, you know, 30s, mm-hmm. late 20s to mid 30s. And there's a great stat news story that kind of follows um, the negative health consequences that some of these young women have experienced from taking puberty blockers. And, you know, it'll be like you're in your 20s or your 30s and your jaw is shattering or your hip is shattering because your bone density has been, you know, your puberty is when you are supposed to be like adding bone density that will last you for the rest of your life, or at least you sure hope so. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there are young women with osteoporosis. There are effects on mental health. There are have been reported effects that it would lower IQ, um, effects on memory, um, effects on, I think there have been like reported seizures and the studies, the few studies of gender dysphoric kids on these drugs, Michael Biggs has untangled some of this, like for all of the claims about these drugs, buying time and helping to like helping to mitigate the stress that kids feel as they're facing down what doctors would call, you know, the wrong puberty, mm-hmm. which is just puberty. Um, you know, Michael Biggs looked and he was like, okay, for girls in particular, like the time that they were on blockers, their mental health declined, their self-harm went up. Like mm-hmm. these are drugs that are not functioning and fulfilling the promise that they're supposed to mm-hmm. within this area of medicine. They're not buying time. They seem to be locking kids into this like lifelong pathway of taking, you know, moving on to cross-sex hormones, being infertile if they have, you know, never gone through normal puberty. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, we're just creating this whole generation of guinea pigs. And I can't, I can't remember who said this, but somebody said, I'd call it an experiment, except with an experiment, you're supposed to track the outcomes. And that's mostly not happening. It's not happening. Yeah. So these are, you these are serious drugs that are, that were developed and used Mm -hmm. for very serious conditions. And you said that there was a group of women who received these in the, in the nineties at some point, a group of young girls who were being treated with some of these, this class of drugs for precocious puberty, but in tracking Mm -hmm. the outcomes for those people, we noticed some serious problems with their long-term health or their, I guess it's medium. Not even that long-term. I mean, yeah. yeah, it's only been, what, not even 20 years, really? Well, maybe yeah. 20 years. Probably about 20 years. Mm-hmm. But, mm-hmm. you know, these are people who should be in the prime of their life and are having kind of, you know, that the falling apart health that someone might experience in their 80s. Mm-hmm. And so they're, these are, just looking at that alone, Yeah, it seems like this is a very serious intervention to take yes. with someone. And if there were a way to help that person without using that, you'd want to do that. You would think so. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And what's the age of, of the child of children? And do you know the stats on, or any kind of, do you have a sense of how many people are being treated with these right now? So I don't really, I don't remember the numbers from the UK, which, Mm -hmm. you know, has a centralized health system that it's much easier to track this stuff Mm -hmm. in the U S I'm not sure that anybody knows. Um, Reuters did some reporting on kids transitioning but they had access to like one health insurance database mm-hmm. and that surely doesn't include I mean, people are publicly insured people who go through, mm-hmm. you know, who pay privately. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't think we know. Okay. If anybody does know, let me know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'd be curious yeah. about that information. Yeah, me too. And a lot of times when we think about, interventions for, for gender affirmation, Mm -hmm. as they call it. And 
just going back, something you said about going through the wrong puberty. That's something I've heard a couple of times recently. I've heard people saying mm-hmm. things like going through puberty without consent. Yes. Like phrases like this, that like you have to consent to a body process. It's like, it's like, I just don't even know. I, I kind of, I'm at a, a little bit of a loss for words thinking yeah. about the, the linguistic leaps that you have to take in order to reframe it that way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, wrong puberty, non-consensual puberty. Mm-hmm. All of this is trying to shift kind of the onus of medical responsibility from, okay, prove that an intervention is safe to prove that non-intervention, that not blocking puberty is safe. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And like, this is definitely something that, um, when I went to the World Professional Association for Transgender Health Conference, when I went to the European version, those kinds of claims and that attempt to kind of shift the burden of proof were really front and center. Will, will you talk a little bit about that organization? So that's, that's yeah, sure. WPATH, World Professional Organ- Association for Transgender Health. And it sounds very... That sounds really official. I mean, that sounds like that must be the place to go to get really good scientific information. Yeah, as Stella O'Malley has said, it self-identifies as the professional association for, you know, transgender health. Um, Yeah, so this is an organization that formed in the 1970s, and it's gone on an interesting journey over time. Um, The main product that it releases and the main way that it disseminates its views about kind of trans healthcare is that it creates these standards of care. And, you know, these are, these are standards of care that are referenced by doctors and medical associations and governments when they're making policy all across the Western world, maybe more broadly than that. In that position of, of being thought of as the standard. So I'm not an expert on the kind of the history of WPATH, but my sense is that there was nobody else who was filling this function. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, there's a vacuum Mm -hmm. and the Harry Benjamin Society and then later WPATH, like that's the same organization over time, like kind of steps in and fills that. And, and like Stella says, like self-identifies as the, Mm -hmm. as the authority on this subject. Um, And the standards of care are certainly interesting. Um, They, at at the European W at the European version of WPATH that I went to a couple of months ago, part of the opening plenary was this long defense of um, the WPATH standards of care and comparing it to other standards of care for things like HIV, which of course you can diagnose with a test, mm-hmm. unlike a transgender identity or gender dysphoria, mm-hmm. um, and the comparisons. We're almost completely like quantitative where it would be like, okay, well, the HIV standards of care looked at this many articles and has this many citations and had this many reviewers. And we had more of all of those things. Okay. So there's like, what I would say is like, they're really trying to provide the appearance of science and it's not necessarily the practice. And so in that way, it's a lot like transition. It's like idea laundering. It's idea laundering, but it's also like, okay, we can't actually change your sex, but we can give you this appearance of the opposite sex. And it's mm-hmm. like, okay, well, we're not actually like doing science and engaging with criticisms, like, but we're giving, we're going to give you like the very convincing appearance, the most convincing appearance that we can put on of doing that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's how it seems to me. Okay. Yeah. It's very yeah. analogous. It's very analogous. And they will be very clear when they're talking, um, when they're talking about the standards that they put together about the things they didn't consider. Mm-hmm. So okay. they'll say like, you know, we didn't consider any research, any evidence whatsoever that doesn't take in like trend, like gender identity as a natural human variation, which means anything that suggests that maybe gender dysphoria and transgender identity aren't kind of these, <laughs> that this aren't, isn't a deep part of being human, that this might be, you know, a symptom of something else. Like none of that was considered. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So they actually address that. They actually the, say that. Right. They don't address it in a way where they're saying, by the way, we're 
biased. They address it in a way where they're like, well, of course we wouldn't consider that stuff. Mm. Okay. Do they endorse, do they explicitly endorse these interventions with young people? I certainly the idea that they are appropriate for some young people. Okay. Like in the last standards of care, they removed all age limits for kind of hormonal interventions and surgeries. Mm-hmm. Um, they talk a lot about assessment and very little about how you would actually tell the difference between a child who might benefit and a child who wouldn't benefit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and they do give some time to the idea of assessment, which seems like that is just mm-hmm. not being done in these letter writing things, but I don't know how much that applies to minors. Yeah. So I don't know about the letter writing. My, that, I would guess that, that might you be have to adults. be over age. Okay. Okay. Just because it seems incredibly risky, even for this field. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, I think even people who have, even clinicians who have concerns that, you know, maybe affirmation isn't the right approach for every single patient will really struggle to clarify, you know, what what assessment can you use to determine who will benefit? Mm-hmm. Nobody seems able to answer that. Mm-hmm. And so no matter what kind of concern a clinician expresses about, you know, some patients being transitioned inappropriately, if they can't answer that question about assessment, how do they know that they're not doing the same thing, but with fewer kids? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And with... With WPATH's standards of care, what do they say Mm -hmm. about social transition? Do they have any thoughts on that? Um, Is it free for all or? I'm trying to, I can't remember that right off the top of my head. Okay. I'm wondering. I would say in general. It's being used so frequently and it's being implemented. I I just, in fact, I just spoke with a family who's, uh, who were considering a specific, a particular school for their child, Mm -hmm. told the school before before beginning at this school. So my child is, is wanting to identify as the opposite sex Mm -hmm. and trying to use a different name, but our family is working with a counselor and we're not doing that right now. We're not Mm -hmm. doing that route. The school explicitly told the parents, no, we will be respecting the child's um, yeah. and, and actually used the opposite sex pronoun in the letter to respond to the parent. The child had never met, uh, had never met these people. They'd never assessed the child in any way. Their school, they don't really, how do they have the qualification right. to make that assessment at all? But just on the parent's word that they, that this was happening, the school intervened on behalf of, yes. of the self-diagnosis that the child was making. So that's, it just seems like social transition is this very big thing that's happening willy nilly everywhere. And I wonder what, what the yeah what the standards are around this. I don't remember what the standards of care say specifically about social transition, but I I've talked to affirmative clinicians about social transition. And there were also sessions at both of these conferences about social transition. Mm-hmm. And with a few exceptions, most of these affirmative clinicians don't seem to take social transition very seriously. Okay. In terms of, they don't think of it as a serious psychosocial intervention. Okay. So it's just, Um, if the kid wants to do it, do it. Right. If the kid wants to do it, do it. And that it would be bad and that there wouldn't be any reason to hold off. Okay. So I think that there's not an appreciation of the way that kind of coming out publicly, asking everybody in your kid's life to like lie to your kid about their sex. That seems like it violates so much. These seem like pretty big decisions and it seems like it makes it really hard for a kid to change their mind right and they'll often talk about it in a way where they like make it seem there's a lot of minimization in the way that these clinicians talk about what they're doing and so they'll talk about social transition that includes changing names and changing pronouns and they'll make it mostly about like well of course you would let them like cut their hair however they want and play with whatever toys you want they want and it's like this is not the same thing like One of these is unloading, you know, the innocent preferences that a child might have for a certain like way to present and a certain toys to play with and their favorite playmates and their favorite storybook characters. And the other one is asking everybody in a child's life to lie to that child and to enlist all of the other children in that child's life in this fiction. 
Yeah. Like, yeah. But, but the minimization is so interesting. Like, I, I don't I know that you've seen this too. Over the last couple of months, um, as gender affirming care has become kind of a dirty word in the U.S., mm-hmm. mostly because, um, you know, Republican legislators have dragged gender affirming care kind of into the public eye in a way that it wasn't here before. Mm-hmm. Um, that the proponents of, of gender affirming care will define ever more innocent and ever more uncontentious things as gender affirming care, like telling a girl that it's okay to have long hair and wear a dress mm-hmm. is gender affirming care. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's a false equivalency. Yeah. It's, I mean, this is what you do when you want, when you do not want the public to understand what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I got noisy yeah. on my end right now. I don't know it's if you okay. can hear that. <laughs> oh, gosh. It sounds like somebody's backing up into your house. <laughs> yeah. uh, there's a church parking lot next door, and I okay. guess they must be doing something. So okay. anyway, sorry about the noise. Um, it's okay. So I guess I'm curious, where are you feeling? How are you feeling about where this is right now? Do you feel like we're going to move through this? Do you have a sense of optimism or do you feel like we're still slogging through it? What What do you think is going on in terms of the broader social movement? Are people waking up to the dangers of this? I think that a lot of people are waking up to the dangers of it. For a lot of people, that's because the issue has really come home. You know, somebody that they love is identifying as transgender. And as soon as that happens, like it makes it very difficult to believe the things that you're supposed to believe about gender identity and transition when somebody who you are close to, who you know very well, who you love, kind of adopts this identification. It's like, okay, this isn't being authentic. And, you know, it's never somebody who's in a great place in life and is like, and also I realized that I'm really a man. Like, mm-hmm. that's never how it happens. Mm-hmm. And you so often watch people who adopt a transgender identity, like really um, deteriorate kind of mentally, like they be- like social interactions become more hard, like everything becomes more fraught. Mm-hmm. And that's really a wake up call. And, and all the more so when it's a parent with a kid, like I think that it's coming home for a lot of parents as their mm-hmm. kids are, are picking this up. So I think, I think more people are starting to understand what's going on. And at the same time, my, the thing that I'm worried about is how much will public opposition matter because kind of the elite and institutional buy-in is so strong and the kind of the social media censorship apparatus is so strong. If you play with these like open AI systems, you can see, you know, if this is the kind of the search engine of the future where you ask a question and then it tells, rather than giving you a bunch of results that you can sort through and say, okay, this seems legit, this doesn't, like, it'll just give you an answer. Mm -hmm. Um, Like, you know, these have been programmed in such a way that it's very chilling. Okay, so they're supporting. There, there's support on one side that they're take. They're kind of right. creating a s- certain narrative, even in the search engine. Yeah, that now, these the have AI. been that these AI like it's clear that programming has been written that like returns affirmation as the answer, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. rather than returning a variety of results that someone can assess for themselves, no matter how you know. Mm-hmm no matter how, how skewed the stack or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so that means that any yeah. reference, any authorities of reference are going to be supporting this thing longer than, so even if you get a, a, a lot of people questioning this, it's not necessarily going to be easy to shift things. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it'll be an interesting test, I suppose, maybe a grim test of how much public understanding and public support matters. Mm-hmm. And I don't have a sense of how that's going to go. Is there anything that makes you feel optimistic? And it's um, okay if there's not, I don't want to force you to no, be optimistic, I, but I'm curious. I mean, I do think that I've, I've kind of said something like this before, um, and I'm, I'm still going to hold on to it. I think that just as self-censorship is kind of a vicious cycle, Mm-hmm. And the more people who censor themselves, you know, the the more kind of the language constricts, the more the possibilities of like discussing something constrict. I think when people are more open, when people try to speak clearly, like that's pretty contagious too. Mm-hmm. And I think that as more people 
start speaking clearly about gender that is going to disinhibit other people to be like, okay, this didn't quite seem, you know, this is the conversation that I've had dozens and dozens of times with people one-on-one where they'll be like, you know, I did have a lot of concerns and I thought that I was the only one who felt that way. Hmm. And the more people speak out, the less people are going to feel isolated in their totally normal response to a movement that is sterilizing kids and silencing women. And, you know, mm-hmm. yeah, the more people are going to be feel comfortable calling that what it is. So I'm hopeful about that. Mm-hmm. And it's going to be an interesting test of kind of the people versus the <laughs> versus institutional capture. David versus Goliath. Yeah. So, and in speaking with people who, um, you know, and that's one of the things I, I, do we talk to and how do we talk about it? Like ideologically Mm -hmm. captured people or ideologically um, programmed or whatever. There's, it seems like there's a lot of ways to talk about this that seems sort of condescending. Like I'm sitting here in this place where I know things that you don't clearly know, but there also is a sense of that. There is a sense that people who are enthralled to some of these, these ways of, of Mm -hmm. thinking are, are deliberately not taking in the whole picture or deliberately blocking out certain Mm -hmm. bits. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So how do you communicate with people and do you communicate with people who are in that position? So I have, in the past communicated with people in my own life who were in that position where you would say like, okay, this person is just completely like a complete ideologue. Mm-hmm. I try not to do this anymore because it has not gone very well. And I don't have any reason to think that I'm going to get better at it. Um, I think that the people that we need to talk to are people who are, you know, maybe they're leaning one way or the other, maybe they feel like they're supposed to lean a particular way, but they're not complete ideologues. Mm-hmm. Those are the people that we can move. Um, and the ideologues will, you know, they will change when the ideology, when the ideological fashion changes mm-hmm. and not before then. Mm-hmm. So I think, I think it was Helen Joyce who said like, okay, well, we need to go around these people mm-hmm. and get to people who haven't made up their minds and plugged their ears. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's a lot of discussion about this as a left-right issue. Yeah. And I'm curious about your thoughts about that. I I don't see it as being quite that simple. And I also don't, I don't see the, who it was somebody I was speaking with just the other day. It was Bruce party who Mm -hmm. is um, he's a, and he's from uh, Toronto, Ontario. He's a law professor and he was brilliant on this. I really enjoyed the, the way that we, the way that he laid things out because it framed things for me in a new way. But when he was talking about the left, right, he said, there's not really two sides. There's three because you've got the left, the right, and then the liberals mm-hmm. he positioned the conservatives and liberals as something two distinct things. And then the left as a different thing mm-hmm. right now. And I, I don't, I'm just curious about what, what are your thoughts on this as a political phenomenon? Yeah, so I can see what he means, and I would slice a little differently. I would say the divide is kind of classically liberal versus illiberal. Mm -hmm. And people can be a liberal from, you know, any political orientation. Mm -hmm. Um, This is an illiberal child of the left primarily. Mm -hmm. And the pushback to it is going to be liberals who are, you know, whether they considered themselves conservatives or progressives or whatever before all of this happened, but that seems like a much more salient divide. Mm-hmm. certainly than it ever has seemed to me in my lifetime. Mm-hmm. Although, of course, I think in the past, like, you know, I mean, this, you know, what is the salient divide of politics? Like it changes all the time. Mm-hmm. Well, I've, I've noticed this, that, you know, I, I, um, I had a conversation with someone else recently, and this is a person who is still identifying as a Democrat Okay. And that's so that's the left wing in the U.S. So the Democratic Party, I, I used to consider myself a Democrat. I've left that. Mm-hmm. I don't know what that I don't know where I am now. It doesn't mean I'm a Republican. I just am kind of confused about the the playing field and kind of disgusted with with a lot of things that I'm seeing politically. Yeah. And um, but comments that came in were like these, these two people, they're constantly referring to the left. They're apologizing to the left. They're still trying to ingratiate themselves. And, and 
Um, And my sense is that the left is going to slander anybody who speaks out against this stuff. And so there's just Mm -hmm. this very far in tail and then everybody else. Mm -hmm. And so to try to talk to that side that, that, as you put them, like the really the ideologues, I don't think there's any talking to them with nuance at this point. No. And it sounds like that's your sense as well. No, I mean, can't really convince somebody that the earth isn't flat with reasoned argument, you know, I just, mm-hmm. but you can convince everybody else to look at the evidence. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's how I feel too. And I think, you know, I feel like I'm in a very similar position to you politically where it's like, yeah, I always voted Democrat and um, I don't, I don't see myself as a Democrat anymore. I'm not a Republican. I don't, I don't really know who I'll be voting for. Mm-hmm. Um, and that sense of just being, you know, politically adrift. Yeah. 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 I think yeah. it's a really common experience right now. Yeah, I think it is. I, I mean, it's definitely strange to be like, you know, the things that I grew up with and including some of the people that I you know, grew up with. And you think that these things will be part of your life and will have a kind of consistent place in it. Mm-hmm. And then there's this unbridgeable gap that opens. So, you know, my parents were Democrats. I thought that I would always be a Democrat. I grew up listening to national public radio. Like we would have it on like 10 hours a day in our house. Um, Now, you know, like many people I'll play the NPR game, but that takes about a minute. Um, I don't know know what that is. I I used to listen to NPR, but I don't know. Okay. I think a lot of people came up with this independently. Like, uh, because I... I was playing this game before I heard like Katie Herzog has talked about it a lot. Okay. My dad came up with this independently much more recently um, where you turn NPR on and then you wait until they make something really trivially about transgender or race or something oh. like they make it about identity politics and you turn it off and it's the game is like, how long did it take? Uh huh. Okay. And the answer is usually about a minute. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And yeah. So like, you know, breaking up with a PR, um, I thought that I would always support places like, you know, the American Civil Liberties Union. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They've kind of, they've taken a turn. Yeah. There were friends yeah. who I thought when we're old biddies, you know, we'll still talk all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. For sure. There have been, there have been a lot of breakups. But a lot of losses, a lot of social losses. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of like, I have a book proposal that is out right now and it's, you know, you kind of have to come up with this like publicity plan, which feels completely, you know, it feels completely narcissistic on the one hand and completely just like pie in the sky on the other hand, because of course nobody's accepted the book proposal at the point that you write this much less like you haven't written the book. Nobody wants to talk to you about it because you haven't written it because you haven't gotten a book proposal accepted, but you have to tell them like, well, like maybe I would go on this, you know, radio show and I would talk to this person. And it was kind of like, it was kind of heartbreaking for me when I was writing that to be like, okay, as a teenager, when I was stuck and I was writing, Uh I would always imagine that I was being interviewed by like Terry Gross on oh, NPR yeah. because she asks like yes. such good questions and that would always get me unstuck. And as I was filling out the section of the book proposal, it was like, she oh. probably wouldn't want to talk about this. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. It's like an icon. That's yeah. That's a tarnished gone. icon. Yeah. 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 Wow. Anyway. Well, you're a yeah. phenomenal writer and I hope you get that. I hope you get the book done. I Thanks. It works out. I hope somebody buys it. If you know anybody. Oh, I'll buy it. If you'll sign yeah. a copy for me. Oh, I mean, like a publisher has to buy it first. Oh, a publisher. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I so hope you get that. if you're a publisher so, out there. Yeah, no, I'm not. But yes, maybe somebody out there. Yeah. Um, so speaking of writing, where yeah. where can people find your writing? Yeah. Um. So I write on Substack at Eliza Mondegreen at subject.com.subject.com. Um, and everything that I write everywhere else, I also link to there. Okay. So that's, any, that's where everything Do you have at. any other recommendations or references you'd like to direct people to? Um, I just, I guess I've been thinking about some of my favorite people to 
follow on Twitter and like the people who I always, always read, even as Twitter continues to mess with the algorithm and make it impossible to like use the app. Um, I have really appreciated uh, the work that um, Karina Khan and Lior Sapir and Candace Jackson do, especially about US politics mm. and the real mess that that is. Um, they, they just, those people always have a great analysis. Um, Helen Joyce and Victoria Smith, I always, like, I will read anything either of those women write ever. <laughs> and a small account that I really love is the, oh, it's like, it's the account of an anonymous social worker, and I can send it to you, and you can put it in the show notes. Okay. Yeah, totally. But yeah, this is a person who, he just has such a depth of analysis of kind of what's going on like psychologically, what's going on within like the profession of social work and um, and also just a brilliant writer. Just so. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Well, if you send that, I'll, I'll include it. So people want to check that out. They can follow that link yeah. or whatever it is and add. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me today and yeah, it was lovely to talk to you. Yeah, definitely. Thank you so much. Thanks, Leslie.